What I'd like to do this morning is uh, continue on with a, a subject that we've looked at over the past few months, and that is the ministry of Jesus Christ, and particularly the ministry of Jesus Christ as found in the Gospel of Matthew. And this one, this sermon, will have a title. It is Jesus Teaches in Parables. As I mentioned, over the past several months, we've taken a look at segments of the book of Matthew, and we're going to move forward on that, and we're going to look at primarily Matthew 13. But just for a little bit of uh, context, I suppose, and reference here, is the focus of these the past four sermons that I'm referring to uh, were the ministry of Jesus Christ. We had uh, two, actually two that focused on Jesus' ministry of teaching, and there were two sermons on basically about the Sermon on the Mountain, covering Matthew 5 and 7. We, we dealt with and Matthew's example of how Jesus taught about the law of God, standards of personal behavior, thoughts, actions, good works, and things like that. Next, we had Jesus' ministry of healing. So this ministry had different facets to it, if you will. That took us through Matthew 8, verse, verse, Matthew 8 and 9, where Matthew had grouped together examples of Jesus' healing, illustrating his compassion, care for the outcast, his authority over body, life forces, even the spirit realm, over sin and death. And last, we had Jesus' ministry of proclamation, I'll call it. Uh, Matthew 10, Jesus sent forth the disciples, and this is sort of a precursor or a uh, picture for the church, which would later be sent forth in the book of Acts, but unto this very day, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. And in that sermon, Jesus grants authority to them. He gives them some limitations. He tells them what to say and some practical instruction on dealing with rejection and opposition. The next section of extended teaching from Jesus is found in Matthew 13. And you know those extended sessions because, well, if you have a red-letter Bible, there's this big sea of red letters. And Matthew does seem to present Jesus' teaching as uh, sermons that are, uh, you know, there in the book. And uh, Matthew 13 is... is one. It's a well-known section. If you are a student of the Bible and you've been reading it for many years, you probably know that Matthew 13 is a whole series of parables, a whole series of parables. It's actually the first major section of parables in Jesus' teaching and in Jesus' ministry. The question that I want to ask is, and it's a rhetorical question because the answer is too long for you to blurt out, why did Jesus start teaching in parables. Why did Jesus begin using parables? Now you've probably heard, and I've heard this, you've probably heard that Jesus was a great storyteller. Who's heard that? He was a great storyteller. And that he used stories to get attention, uh, to, or to get the attention of his listeners, and to drive home a particular spiritual or doctrinal point. And Jesus was indeed a good storyteller, and his parables do drive home particular spiritual and doctrinal understanding, but not to everyone. I like fables. I like, you know, like Aesop's fables. Uh, my favorite fables are actually Herman Hesse's collection of fables. Fascinating. I read through them, and they're just this magic, like, weird, super real, super real um, essence, but I don't get them. I don't know what they're all about. They have symbols and meanings and stuff like that that Herman Hess knows about them or the guy who wrote the fable. But I have, you know, beyond a certain level, I don't know what they're talking about. It's cool, but I don't know what they're talking about. Now, Jesus didn't always speak in parables. 
Frequently, he spoke quite plainly to the people about who he was and what he was up to. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. That's about as plain spoken as it gets, especially for people who had a good background in the law. So he didn't always speak to them mysteriously. He sometimes was very upfront about what he was saying. And as we have seen, some couldn't really take it in because they were expecting the Messiah to act in a certain way. You know, well, he, the Messiah is supposed to be like this or like that. But this guy's like this. And Jesus just, you know, he wasn't doing what a lot of people, well, most people actually expected the Messiah to do and to say. Even the disciples were confused. The gospel records, furthermore, indicate that what really drew the crowds was the miraculous displays of power. The healing, driving out demons, feeding vast crowds with a few loaves of bread and so forth. And to take a look at that, actually to kind of um, gear up for looking at chapter 13, we're going to go back and look at the chapters that preceded, chapters 11 and 12. You might have thought, yeah, he's going to miss chapters 11 and 12. No, we're not. But we're not going to go through them in detail. I'm going to zip through them, and I encourage you perhaps to read them uh, again afterwards if you want. But in chapter 11, if you've got your Bible, and it has, like most Bibles have these little title headings and things like that, and this one is probably uh, titled something about John the Baptist. Mine says, Jesus and John the Baptist. So in chapter 11, if you read this through, and I encourage you to do just that, we find that, G that John the Baptist, and this is, this is the one who pointed to Jesus in the beginning and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the same, you know, John the Baptist, after seeing how Jesus was operating, he was teaching and healing and kind of correcting the weird religious ideas that people had. He sent forth the disciples to preach the King of God. And after seeing all this, John was confused. And John, here in chapter 11, sends messengers to Jesus asking him, Are you really the Messiah? Or should we keep looking? So even John the Baptist was kind of confused about what Jesus was doing because it wasn't what he expected. Here I am, I'm in prison, all this stuff's going on, he's got these crazy fishermen running around. What's going on? Is this really the Messiah? Or should I keep, you know, should we keep looking for the Messiah? And Jesus responds to John, or the messengers, and he reminds John of the prophecies that are being fulfilled, the healing of the sick, casting out of demons that the Messiah was prophesied to do. And he reminds John of these things, and then he coaches him to hang in there, basically. So hang in there, John. Hang in there. So there's a crowd all gathered around them, and they're hearing all this stuff. And then Jesus turns to them, and he starts explaining a bit about what's going on, and he gives them an explanation uh, that John is indeed the last of the Old Testament prophets. You know, because here you've got kind of John at a point of weakness, you know, what, what's going on? Are you the Messiah or not? And they're hearing all this. And he says, no, look, look folks, John is who he said he was. And he, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And if you're willing to take it in, he is the Elijah to come. Very specific prophecy from the end of the Old Testament. And then Jesus turns on the crowd, if you will, turns on. Well, he starts criticizing them. He criticizes them for their fickleness. And he says, well, you guys just... 
this is the scripture where he says, you know, we played the flute and you wouldn't dance and we sang a dirge and you wouldn't mourn. What's with you people? What do you want? John, John came with a very somber message. John lived out in the desert. He wore hair, like itchy clothes, like camel hair, and he only ate very organic food, I guess. <laughs> he ate locusts and honey. It was a, a, a very somber, a very, um, what's the right word? A, a ministry or a lifestyle of self-denial, if you will, spiritual discipline. And he preached a message of repentance before God. And what did they say about John? They said, that man is possessed by a demon. Now, some came to hear, some came to listen, right? But a lot of people said, that guy, he's possessed. So then Jesus comes along with a message of mercy and joy and restoration. And they said, that guy, he's a partier. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. And he's a friend of sinners. And he hangs around with tax collectors. So what was going to make people happy? So he's, he's getting on their case about it. He's not happy about the way people are responding to the messengers of God, both John and himself. And then he goes on to criticize the cities that he's been doing all his preaching in. He says, woe to these cities, you know, even his hometown. He'd been preaching and teaching in them. And as I pointed out, some very plain spoken teaching about right and wrong, how to interpret God's law, how to put it into your life. And people had not responded. They really had not responded to the plain teaching instruction that they'd gotten both from himself and from John. It's as if the words went in one ear and then just went out the other. Oh, this is all very nice to listen to, and I, you know, but it's not making an impact. The people had not changed their lives at all. They weren't changing as the result of what they were hearing. And so that's why they were being criticized. Elsewhere, the scriptures say it's like the, the, the Jesus or the preacher would come and he would say words and they'd like, be like beautiful music. And you listen to it and you go, oh, wasn't that nice? Wasn't that nice? Oh, that was very pleasant. I enjoyed that. That was very entertaining. But they're not changing. Jesus was not happy with them. Let, let's take a look here in chapter 11. And I want to take you to chapter, uh, verse 25 and 27 and just read those. In Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except by the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And he's saying this to this crowd of people. And what he's talking to them about, he's talking to them about humility. Humility as a prerequisite, if you will, for receiving and understanding and taking in God's truth. Well, let's just read the next couple of verses here, 28 and 30. He says to them, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he's talking to them about receiving truth, 
with humility before God, and that's part of the whole process. And then he talks to them about what he's offering them. He's offering them relief. Then, he, then we see in chapter 12 two examples of the kind of relief that Jesus is offering. One is a continuation, well, actually they're both continuations of what we've already seen in the book of Matthew. The first is the traditions of men. And another way to say that would be false religious beliefs. False religious beliefs. And false religious beliefs lead people into not only blind alleys, which offer no hope, but very often into burdensome details and crazy little wingnut things that they're supposed to do. If you read this section here, in your Bible it's probably called Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath or something to that effect. And again, I encourage you to read this section on your own. And I think you'll see that here we have an example, another example of Jesus confronting the burdensome traditions of men. He's not coming at them saying, oh, that Sabbath law is passe, it's done. No, we don't need to do that. Um, we don't need to obey God anymore. What he's saying to them is related to their traditions and how they were dealing with the Sabbath. Okay? Because here, they're, that's, this is where they're walking. He and his disciples are walking through the field and they just pluck some grain. You know, like if you were pulling up a stalk of grass and you put it in your mouth to just chew on it like that. Well, the Pharisees would be all over you. Well, you just harvested from the field. And what he says to them is basically saying, you guys are crazy. I'll put it in my own words, if you will. Um, so it, it's okay to eat on the Sabbath, and it's okay to lift food to your mouth from a bowl or a plate, but it's not okay to reach down and pluck a head of grain and put it in your mouth and chew on it? But that's a Sabbath law? That's inspiring? That's uplifting? It's okay to pull a stranded animal out of a hole on the Sabbath? but it's not okay to heal a suffering person on the Sabbath? What are you guys talking about? And again, I'm putting this in my own words, and he basically says, and why are you lecturing me on what's allowed on the Sabbath? I'm the creator. I made the Sabbath. I know what it's for, and I'm showing you what it's for. So these are some examples of burdens that were laid on people. I mean, imagine if you lived in a world, and sometimes we do this to ourselves, where there's all these little rules, you know, you do this, you don't do that. How do you keep track of it all? And then someone's just going to jump on you, and they're going to judge you, and they're going to give you a hard time. The law of the Sabbath is pretty straightforward. You know, don't work on the Sabbath. Don't have people working for you on the Sabbath. Things like that, right? Where people get into difficulty is like, you know, the part where we look at don't do your own thing on the Sabbath. And then that's where people just take off and go, wow, yeah, well, whatever. But they were, I mean, they, they're trying to come up with all these rules so they didn't violate the Sabbath, but they had become a burden. And Jesus was there saying, I'm going to relieve you of some of these burdens. I want you to think about it this way. And what was their reaction? What was their reaction? Verse 14. Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. So their reaction was, they were beginning to plan how they would destroy and kill him. The other example of what he was offering them relief from is spiritual oppression. Again, this is something that was seen previously in Matthew, but here is another example, and it follows right after this statement. I think that's why Matthew structured it this way, spiritual oppression. So in chapter 12, right after the whole Lord of the Sabbath 
controversy, and this is all happening at the same time from what I read, um, they bring a demon-possessed person to him and he casts the demon out as an example of his power and authority and willingness to release people from spiritual oppression, to drive away spiritual forces by casting a demon out of a man. So another example of how he is offering them relief from their burdens. And when you have, when you have Christ in your life, Satan is driven away. You are relieved from a lot of oppression and burden. I mean, it's still there, but you have help. You have help. Anyway, so what was the reaction of the people then? What did they do when they saw all this stuff? What did they say? Ah, ah well, the way he can put out that demon is because he's an even more powerful demon himself, or he's in league with Satan himself. And we talked about this a little bit on the Day of Atonement. So they accuse him of being in league with the prince of demons. People were hearing plain spoken, true teaching about repentance from dead works, traditions and silly things they were doing. And they were witnessing with their own eyes the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah with supernatural power over human life, sickness, and the spirit realm. They'd seen resurrections, healings, demons driven out, and they were rejecting it. They were rejecting it. Instead, the last section of chapter 12, instead they asked him to prove himself with some magic tricks, if you will. Show us a sign. I don't know what they were looking for. Make the sun go backwards in the sky or, you know, whatever they were looking for. What kind of a sign would you ask for? They were seeing all kinds of wonderful signs. And the thing that's interesting is God's signs had purpose, healing people, driving out demons. What purpose does it serve to make the sun go backwards in the sky? You know, it's a sign from the scriptures, and, you know, God used that. But they were looking for something else. Show us something else to prove that you're the Messiah, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He refuses, and he offers instead to, he offers them prophecy instead. He says, all right, I'm going to make a prophecy, and it's going to be fulfilled. He prophesied that he would die, and he would be resurrected. And he told them all a bunch of details about the exact time sequence that it would go through. And that's all he would give them. And I put it to you that this is why Jesus began to speak in parables. This is why Jesus begins to speak in parables. And we'll actually read what he has to say about it coming up real soon. But first, what we see in Matthew is a parable. So he gives a parable first, and then he'll tell, why am I speaking parables? His parables and stories were indeed filled with truth. And the parables, for the most part, if you look at them and and read them and think about what he's getting at, mostly have to do with the kingdom of God, Um, doctrinal, prophetic. Where is this all headed? How does this all fit together? And... He was, he, Jesus still remained very plain spoken when it came to matters of how should you live your life, what is sin, you know, obeying the law, law of God and so forth. But when it came to the mysteries of the kingdom of God, he began speaking in parables. So these stories are filled with truth about the coming kingdom of God, but they were not easy to understand without help and instruction. 
And the key to accessing the truth embedded in the parable was humility. Humility. A willingness to ask. What does this mean? A willingness to listen. And a willingness to act upon what is heard. Humility in this case means, and this isn't easy, humility in this case means putting aside your own ideas about truth, reality, life, and listen to God, your creator. It's not easy. Maybe it's easy for you. I don't know. It's not easy for me. Because I have this self-image of myself that, you know, I'm smart. I can think it all through. I can come up with the right answers. But I have to reach a point where I say, I don't. I don't have the answers. And I really do need to humble myself and listen to my creator, the one who made me. Let's take a look at the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, we'll just read it all the way through, verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. And such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed, and some fell along the path. And the birds came, and they ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered, because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Verse 1 is interesting because it says that same day. It starts off saying that same day. So the crowd that's gathered there on the shore, and Jesus is in the boat and kind of creates a natural amphitheater where the sound would be audible to a large group of people. This is the same crowd that's just been standing around watching these miracles and teachings They'd seen casting out of demons, healings, and stuff like that, if you read chapter 11 and 12. So they are drawn by the cool stuff that's going on. You know, it's quite a show. It's quite a show. So the crowd was listening to what Jesus had to say, but you could say that what attracted them was actually the dramatic healings, casting out of demons and so forth. What did they take away from these parables? What would they get out of these parables? I gave you my example of reading, you know, fables and stuff like that, where, you know, they're literature, they're interesting, they kind of create a magic thought world, if you will, and it's enjoyable. I suppose some might walk away from the parable saying, well, you know, that, that Jesus guy, he, he's into some pretty deep stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I really understand what he was saying, but it sounded very profound. There's something in there. And those miracles, those are pretty cool, right? Yeah, that was pretty cool stuff. In contrast, though, a small group of disciples approached Jesus, and these are the disciples, if you will. The small group of disciples approached Jesus, and they asked him to explain 
why he was speaking in parables and what the parables mean. Let's read verses 10 through 17. So after he's given this parable of teaching, the disciples came to him and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he told them, and if you, and if you read parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, they also ask, and, and what do the parables mean? And in verse 11, he, he answers them and says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will be forever hearing, but never understanding. And you will be forever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. And the heart is central to what he's getting at here. And I think that's what he's getting at when he talks about humility. Your heart has to be open, softened. And one of the wonderful things about God's promise for the new covenant and, the, you know, that we have right now, but it will be open and available to everybody, as we talked about at the feast, is a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, right? Stones aren't very absorbent, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> they, they just, they're hard. Not much sinks into a stone. Uh, it's an analogy, and it breaks down. I don't want to take it too far. But he's talking to them here with an an answer to their question. He is basically saying it's a problem with their hearts. They're hard. They're hard. So it's interesting to me that we see two different ways of responding to the parables. One is to just sort of hear them. And the other one is a group who comes and says, well, what does this mean? And can you explain this to us? We want to dig deeper. So for those whose hearts are already hardened, parables remain obscure and actually kind of confused. But for those with a willing heart, willing to humble themselves and be taught, parables can provide valuable insight. There are aspects of the truth which are hidden. They're mysteries. They're kind of out there. They're not part of the normal human experience. You're talking about things that really go so far beyond what we see and hear and think and do in our lives. We can't really grab hold of them ourselves. To understand them, we need a guide. The disciples, very blessed, they had Jesus right there with them. God in the flesh. Later, the Holy Spirit would be given to the church, and the Holy Spirit is available to you now. And I'm going to add something to that. I submit to you that along with the Holy Spirit, you need the church of God. You need the church of God. For example, I do not come to you each Sabbath with messages that are based on stuff that I figured out myself. You might be shocked, but that's not what this is all about. 
That is not what I'm coming here to you with. This is not stuff that I figured out on my own. Not by a long shot, folks. I come to you and all the other speakers. I come to you with messages based on things that I've been taught by others. By others. Now, in this life, and it's getting more and more this way, often, very often, people come to understand something basic and fundamental just from reading the scriptures. Uh, a good example is the Sabbath, the keeping of the Sabbath. And we have many, many people who come to us and they approach us and say, well, I've, I've figured out this stuff. And then they're looking for people who know and understand and teach this as well. The Sabbath wasn't the first thing that I figured out myself, just, you know, well, since we're talking about figuring things out yourself. The first thing that I ever figured out on my own just by reading the scriptures was tithing. And I started tithing before I really knew. I didn't know where to send it. I said, oh, I need to tithe. Huh, where do I send it? And so I didn't have a whole lot of money. But I was looking for a place to tithe, and I started looking around at, you know, churches in the community, and I thought, oh, these people don't really teach stuff that, you know, is biblical. So I first started tithing to the American Bible Society. So I figured, okay, well, at least, you know, they're not teaching a whole lot. They're just giving people a Bible. That's good. And later on, I figured out, you know, yeah, I figured I found the Church of God and began tithing. So that's my story. But I think the Sabbath is more common, uh, that people come to this understanding from reading the Scriptures at face value. But an understanding of God's plan of salvation, you know, all the stuff that we've been going through during the fall holidays, and the stuff that we'll be going through, you know, coming up, as Mr. Jenkins mentioned, in six months, with the spring holy days, the, God's plan of salvation, the truth about judgment, what it means, how it's applied, the resurrections, what sonship in the kingdom of God really means. These things are taught and passed along by the church of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. You need them both. You need them both. It's like, I hope I don't tell this joke too often, but that's a great one. It's like asking, which of the wings on the plane is the most important? <laughs> They're both important. <laughs> They're both important. You need, the, you need the Holy Spirit. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And the Church of God is there. These things are passed along. You don't just grab hold of them easily by yourself. I'm not saying it's impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. But that's not how I see it working in my life, in the lives of people that come and go and um, it's getting more complicated. You know, you've got the Internet out there, and someone can just sit in their dark little room, and they can type in things, and they can read it online, and they can think, oh, I figured this all out myself. So it, it, the, the lines are getting blurred now. But up until this wonderful Internet age, it's all been passed along from people. And I think it's still, even with the ability to Google, you know, the second resurrection and find out all kinds of things about it, you still need the church of God because you won't really, in my opinion, grab hold of it fully without the church of God, without teaching and guidance and direction working together with the Holy Spirit at work in you. With that said, <laughs> let's move on. The explanation of the parable of the sower, and that's verses 18 through 23. Let's read those. Actually, I skipped a couple of verses where he told them how blessed they were for hearing these wonderful things. 
So you can read that later on your own, verse 16 and 17. Verse 18 says, Listen to what the parable of the sower means. I'm going to tell you what it means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And remember, that soil is the heart. The seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. I think it's ironic that with all this going on, people hearing the message, not really perceiving it, the first parable is indeed about perceiving and accepting truth. I think it's intentional. <laughs> I still think it's somewhat ironic, if you will. Jesus presents four ways that the message of the kingdom can be responded to, if you will. The seed is the message. The soil is the human heart. That's your heart. Some hearts are hard. Some are superficial. Some idolize wealth and the world. And some are good. We see that even an enthusiastic response to the truth is insufficient. Some receive the truth with great joy. This is awesome. Cool. Well, that's good. It's a good way to start. I mean, if you're kind of, oh, yeah, well, the truth. Yeah. Uh, you're probably not off to a great start. It's, enthusiasm's good. I just said it's insufficient. It's insufficient. What counts is standing the test of time, perseverance in difficulty, Avoidance of focusing on wealth and the worries of the world. And most of all, hearing and doing. Hearing and doing. Doing the things which proves that our response is genuine and good. That's the crop. The hearing and the doing. To hear the truth well, that's easy. To admit that you're wrong as a result of hearing the truth and changing as a result, that takes humility, doesn't it? To say, yeah, yeah, I was all wrong about that. Oh, I have to change. That's going to be hard. That takes humility. And that's why you have to humble yourself to increase and grow in understanding humbling yourself before God. The parable of the weeds comes next. Let's read that. In the same chapter, verses 24 through 30, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed, and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? 
An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, well, do you want us to go and pull them up? Pull up the weeds? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into the barn. Jesus' parable of the weeds is also about possible responses to the message of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. But we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know anything about that unless he explained it to the disciples later. We really wouldn't get the parable of the weeds, not at all. So what parts of it might people have understood at face value? If he's telling you this parable and he hasn't explained it to you, what would you understand at face value? What might the crowd listening have understood at face value? Well, the word weed or tares, if you're reading the King James, the word is zazanion. And it's a type of weed. It's also called a darnel or a false grain, which is a very, you know, that, that's a really good description, false grain. And in its early stages, you could not tell it apart from a real wheat plant, okay? Only later, when both plants grew up, could you tell them apart. Wheat, think about this, wheat would bear fruit. They have a kernel, a grain, while the zazanion would have nothing. It would just grow into this empty stalk. Looked like wheat when they were little, but when they got big, there's nothing at the top of the Zazanian. There's no fruit. There's no grain. There's nothing there. So the Zazanian had nothing to offer. And even when it did become apparent, you couldn't pull up the Zazanian without disrupting the wheat because the root system would be all intertwined. People would get that. They would understand that. Now, today, we understand the spiritual analogy that Jesus is making, but it's only because he explained it to us. And we'll take a look at that. But first, he gives another parable. The parable of the mustard seed. Let's read that. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of seeds, it's tiny, tiny, it's like a head of a pin. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And he told them another parable along the same lines. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. So it's a big, it'd be a big loaf of bread. That'd be like, as big as my van. 60 pounds of flour until it's worked its way throughout the dough. What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't explain this parable. Jesus does not ever explain the parable of the mustard seed or the leaven in the dough. He never explains it. And so I put it to you that even today, with all the books and all the sermons, there's still a little doubt about what it actually truly means because he never told us. Some of the ways that we, we can look at it, well, I'll give them to you. But what is clear first what we can get from it is that God's plan and purpose in the world begins with something very small and it grows larger. But we don't know what the yeast is. We don't know what the mustard seed is. We don't know what the tree is. And you'll hear some of the craziest stuff about this. If you read through um, the interpretations of the Bible that have you know, gone through the ages 
if you go back about you know, go back to some of the early Catholic type stuff, some of it's pretty wild. Um, we really don't know. We don't know because he never told us. He didn't tell us what those things meant. We do have this principle of something very small growing larger, right? This could refer to our faith, for example, of faith, understanding, and the work of the Holy Spirit within you, which seems possible within the context of what he's talking to them about. It could refer to church growth. It could refer to the spread of knowledge of truth in the millennial rule of Christ, all these things. The principle of something small growing large we get, but we don't know what it pictures because he never told us. I'm glad he told us about the other stuff, though. And I put it to you that way because I, I think sometimes we look at a parable like the parable of the sower or the parable of the weeds, and we say, how could these people be so dense? They didn't get it. Ha, obviously it means this and that. I put it to you that we only understand that because he told us what it meant. Okay, let's read verses 34 and 36. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables, and he did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him and they said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So once again we see the crowd kind of left in a daze, if you will. It doesn't say that, but it doesn't say that they understood what was happening. And I think it's fairly clear they didn't understand it. And that was Jesus' purpose. He spoke to them. He told them these things, and they didn't get it. Oh, I don't know what that means. I mean, he told them some things very plain, you know, like in the Sermon on the Mount. They still didn't get that either. But here in the parables, I get the sense that the crowd's kind of, wow, oh, yeah. And the disciples come to him afterwards, and they say, explain this. Explain this to me. I don't get it. So the crowd, eh, kind of in a daze, not really understanding what they were hearing. But in contrast, the disciples come to him, and they ask. And that same principle, I put it to you, that same principle applies today. Ask God for understanding, and he will answer. Ask God for wisdom, and he will supply. Humble yourself before God and admit that you don't have all the answers. Teach me. Teach me. So what does he say about the parable of the weeds? Verse 37 through 47, he says, actually, I think that's 33. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into a blazing furnace where there will be, no, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The parable of the weeds, if you think back to the... the uh, description I gave you of the plant, you know, the tares. The parable of the weeds 
shows us that God permits the existence of good and evil side by side in this world. Does that shock you? Surprised? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, because if it does surprise you, you've been living in a bubble, a blessed world. Uh, but God does permit the existence of good and evil side by side in this world for his purpose of testing the hearts of men and women as mentioned in the previous parable, the parable of the sower. How will you respond to what you are given? What will you do with it? And this world does test your heart. And the other point is pretty obvious, that God will judge and he will make a separation. The workers in the field are people like you and me, if you would. And the workers in the field here wanted to start pulling the weeds up right away. Oh, let's go and get those weeds. We need to pull them up. So it's people like you and me, and I do this. I just did it this week. You know and you accept the truth. And to you, you say, wouldn't it be better if we just punish the evildoers? Yeah, go get them. Wipe them out. Woo. Yeah, Woo. we win. Ever feel that way? You look around at the world, you read the news, and you think, oh, man, what, why can't we just deal with this? Why can't we just act? But the workers are not equipped to judge. The workers are not equipped to judge. And it's like Jesus, what he said to James and John when they wanted to call fire down from heaven. They were walking along, and they were looking for a place to stay, and someone turned away Jesus, the Messiah, and said, nah, you can't stay here. And they said, Let's call down fire from heaven and zap them. And Jesus said, you guys don't know what manner of spirit you're speaking from. The workers are not equipped to judge. And you can read that in Luke 9, verse 55, if you want to, on your own. Before God will give you power and authority in the kingdom of God, he wants to see what you're made of. Will you put on the mind of Christ? You'll see that through the fruit, of course. You'll see your heart through your fruit. In the 1,000-year rule of Christ, will you deal with dissent and rebellion with firmness, yet patient and not willing to see any perish? That's a tough road to hoe. Because when you see what's right, you want to just charge in there with guns a-blazing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Done. Truth has been fulfilled. That is not God's way, is it? Not what you see in the world. It's not what, fortunately, it's not what you see in your own life either, is it? Because I'd be, you know, if, if I had had a showdown at high noon with God, I think I'd be dead in the street. <laughs> if I had been judged like that, I'd be, you know, just lying there, vultures circling around me. I know I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. So the weeds and the wheat grow side by side. No one is fit to judge or purify human society from evil without also potentially doing harm to those who are good at the same time. It's just, we're just not ready. We're not there yet. That judgment of separation is in God's hands. And the delay we experience now is his patient and gracious opportunity for all to repent. As Peter says, it's not because he's slack, lazy, doesn't care. It's because he's patient 
And he's giving people time to repent. He gives people their whole life to repent. I don't know if that's the spirit that I have yet. I'm impatient. I'm still pretty impatient. Hopefully I'm learning and growing in that. Let's move on. We have the parable of the hidden treasure. And that's verses 44 and 45. He gives them this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, in a similar parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. Now, one thing we, we should probably notice is this explanation of the weeds and this parable here. The crowd is gone. It says there, the crowd left. And it's just the disciples and Jesus. So it's a private session, if you will, with his disciples alone. The crowd's gone. And Jesus starts to wrap up. And he gives them these two simple parables, which make the same point, basically, that the knowledge of the kingdom is so valuable that it's worth sacrificing everything to get it. The first is the example of a person who stumbles across the truth by accident. And that happens. People are called that way all the time. By accident. Oh, I found this piece of literature in the garbage dump. Have you, I've heard stories like that. I, just, I was just walking along one day, and it, the weirdest things you'll hear. Now, there are also people who are actively pursuing truth, and they find it. And that happens too. And these parables show us that there's two different ways. Someone can stumble across it, this guy who, who's digging in a field. It's, back in the old days, they didn't have banks and safety deposit boxes, and when they had valuable stuff, they'd bury it. And then they'd forget about it, and maybe 200 years later, well, maybe they're burying it because, you know, they're being invaded by some army, and it's like, i got to put all mom's jewels in this little box in the field. And then let's say the invading army comes in, wipes everybody out. Well, the jewels are still in the field. People go on. Life goes on. Someone new comes. They buy the field. They're planting potatoes or something like that, and they randomly just... Whoa, a box. This is what he's getting at. Because this happened in that part of the world at that time. So people would have got the picture that he was drawing. Yeah, you find treasure in a field. I don't think they found it all the time. But people would find it. What would you do? Well, hmm. You wouldn't just take it. But you didn't have to tell people about it. So you'd bury it again and buy the field and then it's yours. It's like if, if you um, struck gold in someone's property, Right? You don't have to go to them and say, hey, there's gold in your backyard. You, go, you can go to them and say, I'd like to purchase your property. Right? Is that fair? Okay. Just so you know, he's not talking about someone ripping someone off here. That seems fair to me. Anyway. <clears throat> so God calls different types of people. People can respond in different ways. Finally, well, not finally, actually, the next parable is the parable of the net, which is a fairly simple parable. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them in a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a simple parable, reiterating, saying, once again, God will judge between good and evil. So fear not, little ones. And that's something that his beleaguered followers to this very day must always keep in mind. God will judge. 
And then Jesus wraps it up. And let's just read that in verses 51 and 52. Jesus' conclusion to this session. He says to them in verse 51, Have you understood all these things? And they reply, Yes. And then he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And I find it interesting that Jesus referred to them. He's talking to the disciples here. He talked to them as future teachers of the law. Future teachers of the law. That distinction was soon going to be taken away from the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones who taught the law, judged the law. It was going to be taken away from them. They were the spiritual leaders of that day. And they would have that distinction taken away to them, away from them, and it would be given to those who are willing to humbly seek wisdom. Those who are humbly willing to seek wisdom and understanding from God, to accept it and to act upon it. As the new teachers of the law, the disciples, the apostles, and the church of God will be drawing the meaning out of the Old Testament scriptures, which is the truth delivered from the very beginning, while showing how they are applied in the new covenant age. Bringing out of the storeroom new treasures as well as old. And that, this, is the task of the church of God and we are still working at it today until the day that he returns. Knowledge, understanding, and humility.